0: First among the qualifications required of the aspirant for Jnana or wisdom come Shama and Dhamma, which may be taken together. They mean the keeping of the organs in their own centers without allowing them to stray out. I shall explain to you first what the word organ means. Here are the eyes. The eyes are not the organs of vision, but only the instruments. Unless the organs also are present, I cannot see even if i have eyes but given both the organs and the instruments unless the mind attaches itself to these two no vision takes place so in each act of perception three things are necessary first the external instruments then the internal organs and lastly the mind if any one of them be absent then there will be no perception Thus the mind acts through two agencies, one external and the other internal. When I see things, my mind goes out, becomes externalized. But suppose I close my eyes and begin to think. The mind does not go out, it is internally active. But in either case, there is activity of the organs. When I look at you and speak to you, both the organs and the instruments are active. When I close my eyes and begin to think, the organs are active, but not the instruments. Without the activity of these organs, there will be no thought. You will find that none of you can think without some symbol. In the case of the blind man, he has also to think through some figure. The organs of sight and hearing are generally very active. You must bear in mind that by the word organ is meant the nerve center in the brain. The eyes and ears are only the instruments of seeing and hearing and the organs are inside. If the organs are destroyed by any means, even if the eyes or the ears be there, we shall not see or hear. So in order to control the mind, we must first be able to control these organs. To restrain the mind from wandering outward or inward and keep the organs in their respective centers is what is meant by the words Shama and Dhamma. Shama consists in not allowing the mind to externalize and Dhamma in checking the external instruments. Now comes Uparati which consists in not thinking of things of the senses. Most of our time is spent in thinking about sense objects, things which we have seen or we have heard, which we shall see or shall hear, things which we have eaten or are eating or shall eat, places where we have lived and so on. We think of them or talk of them most of our time. One who wishes to be a Vedantin must give up this habit. Then comes the next preparation. It is a hard task to be a philosopher. Titiksha, the most difficult of all. It is nothing less than the ideal forbearance. Resist not evil. This requires a little explanation. We may not resist an evil, but at the same time, we may feel very miserable. A man may say very harsh things to me, and I may not outwardly hate him for it, may not answer him back, and may restrain myself from apparently getting angry but anger and hatred may be in my mind, and I may feel very badly towards that man. That is not non-resistance. I should be without any feeling of hatred or anger, without any thought of resistance. My mind must then be as calm as if nothing had happened, and only when I have got to that state have I attained to non-resistance, and not before. Forbearance of all misery, Without even a thought of resisting or driving it out, without even any painful feeling in the mind or any remorse, this is Titiksha. Suppose I do not resist and some great evil comes thereby. If I have Titiksha, I should not feel any remorse for not having resisted. When the mind has attained to that state, it has become established in Titiksha. People in India do extraordinary things in order to practice this Titiksha. They bear tremendous heat and cold without caring. They do not even care for snow because they take no thought for the body. It is left to itself as if it were a foreign thing. The next qualification required is Shraddha, faith. One must have tremendous faith in religion and God. Until one has it, one cannot aspire to be a jnani. A great sage once told me, that not one in twenty millions in this world believed in God. I asked him why, and he told me, Suppose there is a thief in this room, and he gets to know that there is a mass of gold in the next room, and only a very thin partition between the two rooms, what will be the condition of that thief? I answered, He will not be able to sleep at all, his brain will be actively thinking of some means of getting at the gold, and he will think of nothing else. Then he replied, Do you believe that a man could believe in God and not go mad to get him? If a man sincerely believes that there is that immense infinite mine of bliss and that it can be reached, would not that man go mad in his struggle to reach it? Strong faith in God and the consequent eagerness to reach him constitute Shraddha. Then comes Samadhana or constant practice to hold the mind in god nothing is done in a day religion cannot be swallowed in the form of a pill it requires hard and constant practice the mind can be conquered only by slow and steady practice next is mumukshutva the intense desire to be free those of you who have read edwin arnold's light of asia remember his translation of the first sermon of buddha where buddha says ye suffer from yourselves none else compels none other holds you that ye live and die and whirl upon the wheel and hug and kiss its spokes of agony its tire of tears its knave of nothingness all the misery we have is of our own choosing such is our nature the old chinaman who having been kept in prison for 60 years was released on the coronation of a new emperor, exclaimed, when he came out, that he could not live, he must go back to his horrible dungeon among the rats and mice. He could not bear the light. So he asked them to kill him or send him back to the prison, and he was sent back. Exactly similar is the condition of all men. We run headlong after all sorts of misery, and are unwilling to be freed from them. Every day we run after pleasure, and before we reach it, we find it is gone. It has slipped through our fingers. Still, we do not cease from our mad pursuit, but on and on we go, blinded fools that we are. In some oil mills in India, bullocks are used that go round and round to grind the oil seed. There is a yoke on the bullock's neck, They have a piece of wood protruding from the yoke, and on that is fastened a wisp of straw. The bullock is blindfolded in such a way that it can only look forward, and so it stretches its neck to get at that straw, and in doing so it pushes the piece of wood out a little further, and it makes another attempt with the same result, and yet another, and so on. It never catches the straw, but goes round and round in the hope of getting it and in so doing, grinds out the oil. In the same way, you and I, who are born slaves to our nature, money and wealth, wives and children, are always chasing a wisp of straw, a mere chimera, and are going through an innumerable round of lives without obtaining what we seek. The great dream is love. We are all going to love and be loved. We are all going to be happy and never meet with misery. But the more we go towards happiness, the more it goes away from us. Thus, the world is going on, society goes on, and we, blinded slaves, have to pay for it without knowing. Study your own lives and find how little of happiness there is in them and how little in truth you have gained in the course of this wild goose chase of the world. Do you remember the story of Solon and Croesus? The king said to the great sage that Asia Minor was a very happy place and the sage asked him, who is the happiest man? I have not seen anyone very happy. Nonsense, said Croesus. I am the happiest man in the world Wait, sir, till the end of your life. Don't be in a hurry, replied the sage, and went away. In course of time, that king was conquered by the Persians, and they ordered him to be burnt alive. The funeral pyre was prepared, and when poor Croesus saw it, he cried aloud, Solon, Solon. On being asked to whom he referred, he told his story, and the Persian emperor was touched and saved his life. Such is the life story of each one of us. Such is the tremendous power of nature over us. It repeatedly kicks us away, but still we pursue it with feverish excitement. We are always hoping against hope. This hope, this chimera, maddens us. We are always hoping for happiness. There was a great king in ancient India who was once asked four questions, of which one was, what is the most wonderful thing in the world? Hope was the answer. This is the most wonderful thing. Day and night, we see people dying around us, and yet we think we shall not die. We never think that we shall die or that we shall suffer. Each man thinks that success will be his, hoping against hope, against all odds, Against all mathematical reasoning, nobody is ever really happy here. If a man be wealthy and have plenty to eat, his digestion is out of order and he cannot eat. If a man's digestion be good and he have the digestive power of a cormorant, he has nothing to put into his mouth. If he be rich, he has no children. If he be hungry and poor, he has a whole regiment of children and does not know What to do with them? Why is it so? Because happiness and misery are the obverse and reverse of the same coin. He who takes happiness must take misery also. We all have this foolish idea that we can have happiness without misery and it has taken such possession of us that we have no control over the senses. When I was in Boston, a young man came up to me and gave me a scrap of paper on which he had written a name and address, followed by these words, All the wealth and all the happiness of the world are yours, if you only know how to get them. If you come to me, I will teach you how to get them. Charge five dollars. He gave me this and said, What do you think of this? I said, Young man, why don't you get the money to print this? You have not even enough money to get this printed. He did not understand this. He was infatuated with the idea that he could get immense wealth and happiness without any trouble. There are two extremes into which men are running. One is extreme optimism, when everything is rosy and nice and good. The other, extreme pessimism, when everything seems to be against them. The majority of men have more or less undeveloped brains. One in a million we see with a well-developed brain. The rest either have peculiar idiosyncrasies or are monomaniacs. Naturally, we run into extremes. When we are healthy and young, we think that all the wealth of the world will be ours. And when later, we get kicked about by society like footballs and get older, we sit in a corner and croak and throw cold water on the enthusiasm of others. Few men know that with pleasure there is pain, and with pain, pleasure, and as pain is disgusting, so is pleasure, as it is the twin brother of pain. It is derogatory to the glory of man that he should be going after pain, and equally derogatory that he should be going after pleasure. Both should be turned aside by men, whose reason is balanced. Why will not men seek freedom from being played upon, this moment we are whipped And when we begin to weep, nature gives us a dollar, again we are whipped. And when we weep, nature gives us a piece of gingerbread, and we begin to laugh again. The sage wants liberty. He finds that sense objects are all vain, and that there is no end to pleasures and pains. How many rich people in the world want to find fresh pleasures? All pleasures are old, and they want new ones. Do you not see how many foolish things they are inventing every day just to titillate the nerves for a moment and that done, how there comes a reaction? The majority of people are just like a flock of sheep. If the leading sheep falls into a ditch, all the rest follow and break their necks. In the same way, what one leading member of a society does, all the others do, without thinking what they are doing. When a man begins to see the vanity of worldly things, he will feel he ought not to be thus played upon or borne along by nature. There is slavery. If a man has a few kind words said to him, he begins to smile, and when he hears a few harsh words, he begins to weep. He is a slave to a bit of bread, to a breath of air, a slave to dress, a slave to patriotism, to country, to name and to fame. He is thus in the midst of slavery and the real man has become buried within, through his bondage. What you call man is a slave. When one realizes all the slavery, then comes the desire to be free. An intense desire comes. If a piece of burning charcoal be placed on a man's head, see how he struggles to throw it off. Similar will be the struggles for freedom of a man who really understands that he is a slave of nature. We have now seen what Mumukshutva or the desire to be free is. The next training is also a very difficult one. Nitya Nitya Viveka, discriminating between that which is true and that which is untrue, between the eternal and the transitory. God alone is eternal, everything else is transitory. Everything dies the angels die, men die, animals die. Earths die, sun, moon and stars all die. Everything undergoes constant change. The mountains of today were the oceans of yesterday and will be oceans tomorrow. Everything is in a state of flux. The whole universe is a mass of change. But there is one who never changes and that is God. And the nearer we get to him, the less will be the change for us. The less will nature be able to work on us. And when we reach him, and stand with him, we shall conquer nature. We shall be masters of these phenomena of nature, and they will have no effect on us. You see, if we really have undergone the above discipline, we really do not require anything else in this world. All knowledge is within us. All perfection is there already in the soul. But this perfection has been covered up by nature. Layer after layer of nature is covering the purity of the soul. What have we to do? Really, we do not develop our souls at all. What can develop the perfect? We simply take the evil off, and the soul manifests itself in its pristine purity, its natural, innate freedom.